You're listening to a special focus on breast cancer from Advances in Women's Health, sponsored by Lilly. I'm Dr. Matt Bernholtz. On this episode, recorded live at the Lynn Sage Breast Cancer Symposium in Chicago, we hear from Dr. Kent Osborne, Professor of Oncology and Director of the Dan L. Duncan Comprehensive Cancer Center at Baylor College of Medicine in Houston. Dr. Osborne gives us an advanced look at the future horizon for breast cancer research and treatment. Here's what he shared. Coming to you from the Lynn Sage Breast Cancer Symposium in Chicago, Illinois, this is ReachMD. I'm Dr. Mabern Holtz. Joining me is Dr. Kent Osborne, Professor of Oncology and Director of the Dan L. Duncan Cancer Center at Baylor College of Medicine. Dr. Osborne has authored more than 530 articles on breast cancer and was actually just honored today with the Lynn Sage Distinguished Lecture exploring de-escalation of systemic therapy to avoid chemotherapy in patients with HER2-positive early breast cancers. Dr. Osborne, welcome to the program. Thank you. So my first question to you, um, in keeping with the lecture that you delivered today, and of course, an area that you've pioneered so much, is starting with the um, idea of oncogene addiction, which is where you began your lecture as sort of a a framing for the audience uh, to catch everybody up. If we're to consider HER2 as an oncogene, why does it stand out in a class all by itself when it comes uh, to the therapeutic standpoint? Can you catch us up to speed on that? I think it's because it's such a powerful driver of cell growth and cell survival. Uh, when you have gene amplification, multiple copies of the HER2 gene and significant increases in the protein on the membrane, that pathway alone is really driving that tumor to grow. And therefore, then blocking that pathway is going to have a dramatic effect on the growth and striking treatment effect. I think other tumors that have oncogenes, maybe the oncogene is not as strong, it's not as potent a driver. And therefore, targeting that gene or gene product alone is not going to be as successful. Or that particular tumor type has other compensatory pathways that are activated as soon as you block the main the driver, which you think is the main driver. Whereas in, in HER2 positive tumors, HER2 is such a potent driver that the other alternative complementary pathways are really turned down, if you think of it that way. They're, they're off. And therefore, if you quickly kill the cell, you don't have time for them to be reactivated. The alternative pathways, you can kill the cell. As I recall, you also cautioned the audience at that point telling them don't get too tunnel-visioned on HER2 because that might mean accidentally neglecting HER1, HER3, which have a very uh, important role to play in uh, tumor escape. Can you talk to that a little bit? Sure. So in the trials of trastuzumab, Herceptin, by itself, with no chemotherapy, you hardly see much of an effect at all on tumor growth in, in metastatic disease, probably because you're only partially blocking the pathway, the HER pathway. The HER pathway is activated by a whole family of receptors, HER1 through 4, predominantly HER1 through 3 for our purposes today. And if you only block HER2, the signaling coming from HER2 homodimers, and you leave open HER1, which can signal down the same pathway, or you leave open HER3, which can signal down the same pathway, then you're only partially blocking the pathway, not completely blocking it. And I think to have a major effect and kill the cell, you've got to completely block it. Thus, need for multiple drugs uh, rather than just one. Hmm. And you had also spoken to the important role of the ER pathway and tumor resistance in HER2-targeted therapies. Can you talk to that issue and whether dual inhibition strategies have been 
I don't want to say universally effective, but highly effective in getting around that. Yeah. So the estrogen receptor pathway, of course, estrogen receptor is present in 50% of HER2 positive tumors, roughly. It can signal too. So if you block HER2, but you don't block the estrogen receptor with endocrine therapy, then you're leaving that pathway wide open to stimulate growth of the tumor. So it seemed logical that we'd have to inhibit both pathways in such tumors. In our preclinical models, in mice, you did. I, mean, I showed the slide where if you don't, you can completely block the HER pathway, but if the ER is left wide open, you have no effect at all on tumor growth. And the data, although not uh, randomized data, across trial data between, say, the Neosphere trial looking at pertuzumab plus trastuzumab in a neoadjuvant setting without chemotherapy, but also without endocrine therapy for those that were ER positive, their past CR rate was 6%. And if you look, compare that to the SOLTI trial, PAMELA, and R2 trials in the TBCRC, where the uh, past CR rate in an ER-positive tumor given endocrine therapy along with the HER2-targeted the HER2 therapy, past CR rates were upward of 20 to 30%. So uh, that suggests that you've got to target both pathways for sure. And even in patients, we've shown in a small number of patients that within two weeks, and these are patients who had very low or negative ER, but HER2 positive. We did a trial of lapatinib by itself. And within two weeks of starting lapatinib, we did a second biopsy. And three of the 17 patients in that trial had already upregulated estrogen receptor and progesterone receptor, suggesting that the estrogen receptor was signaling. Signaling is needed to make progesterone receptor. So uh, that was clear evidence that you can even convert a very low ER-positive tumor into a signaling ER-positive tumor when you block the HER2 pathway. Fascinating. But that brings up uh, another area that seems to be confounding, if not maddening, within the field. Uh, and it brings up the idea of defining and refining what HER2-positive tumors actually are. Because you brought up a very interesting point that is coming more and more into prominence now about um, HER2 heterogeneity, uh, expression within tumors, and how difficult it is to say, well, is this HER2-positive as a tumor or not? What are your thoughts on that and how we grapple with it? Well, I think in the past, we defined HER2-positive simply as a ratio, a HER2-SEP17 ratio of greater than 2, or IHC3+, in greater than 10% of the cells. And that seemed to work fine as a, as a indicator of response to trastuzumab plus chemotherapy. But when you start to de-escalate the chemotherapy and you want to give only HER2-targeted therapy, now you've got to find a tumor that's totally addicted to HER2. And if you've got a tumor that's 85% non-HER2 expressing and only 15% HER2 expressing, that tumor is classified as HER2 positive, but it's not going to be driven by HER2 totally because not 85% of the cells don't even express it. So those kind of tumors, I think we need to uh, redefine, particularly if you're going to use de-escalated therapy or TDM1 particularly, or HER2-targeted therapy without chemotherapy, those kind of tumors are not the ones you want to treat because they're going to, you're going to kill off the few percentage of HER2-positive cells, but you're going to leave the HER2-negative cells, and the patient will re recur. Are we still at a limited point in advancing with the same therapeutic modalities and strategies despite having a better advanced awareness that this might not be as effective because of that heterogeneity? I think the, the discovery or the idea that heterogeneity is important is so new that uh, people haven't grasped it yet. But I think based on the data presented by the Farber Group at ASCO this year 
in our own data and others, uh, this heterogeneity is going to turn out to be very important, particularly when you're using drugs like TDM1, which require HER2 on the membrane to work. And so if you've got a bunch of cells in a HER2-positive tumor that don't have HER2 on the membrane, you're not going to internalize the chemo part of TDM1, and it's not going to kill the cells. So I think now, because of the types of treatments we have and the de-escalation approaches to only using HER2-targeted therapy, we're going to have to pay much more attention, not just to HER2-positive, but what percentage of cells are HER2-positive, and that take into account the heterogeneity, both genomic heterogeneity, which means there are some cells that are amplified for HER2 and some cells that are not in the same tumor, or protein heterogeneity, which means IHC. So you've got in, a, in the tumors I showed today, some of them, you know, half the tumor is strikingly IHC3+, plus, but the other half of the tumor is either 0 or 1 or 2+. Plus. And I think those tumors, that kind of heterogeneity is going to be important as well. And I, I think this brings up, in many ways, the million-dollar question that, I, that you posed out there, which was, asking whether all patients ultimately need chemotherapy. And it sounded like there was still a fair amount of debate as to whether the long-term data is there, um, whether an emphatic no can be made. What are your thoughts on, on that question? I think we certainly can't, can't say that it's standard of care now uh, to not use chemotherapy in a HER2-positive patient. I think we're down now. You can certainly use one chemo drug, paclitaxel or docetaxel, plus dual targeted therapy in some patients, and a lot of people are doing that. But clearly, we're not there yet for no therapy, predominantly because we haven't been able yet to uh, identify those patients that would be best treated in that way. I think we're getting close. We need to confirm and validate some of the data that we have and some of the data presented by the Farber Group on heterogeneity. And I think once we've done that, then I think there will be a group that you can pretty confidently expect a high pass CR rate just with targeted therapy and no chemotherapy. And then those who don't still don't have, they have residual disease, now we can do other things afterward based on TDM1 data, based on neuretinib data, that there are other drugs we can use for that subset who don't get a pass CR. But I think the pass CR rate is going to be very high if we choose the right patient. And are there specific study designs that you anticipate, whether they're actually in play right now or need to be constructed in the future that you think will best elucidate that information to provide the confidence needed? Yeah, I think um, we're, we're planning one such trial, a prospective validation trial of a biomarker uh, selection of patients. And we'll see if that can confirm and validate our preliminary data in the other two retrospective trials. So I think we will eventually find an answer, but it's going to take a while, unfortunately. I think another way to do it would be to take some of the trials that have already been completed and repeat the HER2 assays, look at the question of heterogeneity, for instance, or look at the question of how much amplification there is in those studies, and we might be able to, to sort of semi-validate what we're finding, that is, that the effect of anti-HER2 therapy is much greater if the HER2 ratio is greater than the two that we currently use. And I think we can do that easily retrospectively by just repeating some of the assays in the trials that have already been done. Well, Dr. Osborne, I could have you here all day if, if I had my druthers uh, to ask you many more questions, given the insights that you've provided for the audience here. But uh, just before we go, the areas that you're most excited about in the breast cancer oncology field, um, moving ahead based on what we've seen today, the colleagues that you've interfaced with, what would you like to share with our audience of oncologists, healthcare professionals in, in every field, primary care physicians, et cetera, 
um, about where you're most excited for the field. Well, I've been doing breast cancer research now for 42 years as a faculty member, and it's like night and day. That is, what we did in 1977 or before that when I was a fellow at the NCI, is it really primitive compared to what we do today? And I think individualization of therapy is going to be the answer. Not even ta- I'm not even talking about precision medicine with, with genomic assays. I think that's going to help as well. But I'm just talking about with our standard approaches now, I think we can better individualize therapy for that patient, de-escalate in some cases, escalate in other cases. I think that's where we're headed. And when we add in the genomic and proteomic assays that are going to be coming down the pike and targeted therapy uh, based on those assays, I think that's the exciting part. You know, there's something uh, wonderfully ironic about the more sophisticated the care has become, the simpler we can wrap our minds around the common sense of individualizing the therapy. Right. On the other hand, it's going to be harder to study because there's fewer patients that fit into each of these categories. So how do you, you know, how do you do a randomized trial if you're looking at a subset of breast cancer? That's a pretty rare subtype. And so there's going to be challenges ahead. I think we're going to have to do multiple institution trials maybe around the world in order to get enough patients to answer some of these questions. But that'll be fun too. I have a fair bit of confidence that you're going to be on the leading edge of all of that. And I really want to thank you for your time uh, today. I've been speaking with Dr. Kurt Osborne from Baylor College of Medicine um, about uh, the latest and greatest when it comes to breast cancer care. Uh, Dr. Osborne, thanks again. You're welcome. Thank you. That was Dr. Kent Osborne sharing thoughts on the future of breast cancer research and treatment. To revisit any part of this discussion, and to access other episodes in this series, visit ReachMD.com slash Advances in Women's Health. I'm Dr. Matt Bernholtz, and thank you for listening to ReachMD. Be part of the knowledge.